Uh, good afternoon again. If you have a Bible with you, please open to the book of Acts, chapter 4. We at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of 5. It's the same text that we had last week um, because I just had more to say. <laughs> it, our, our world is broken economically. You know, it's, it's, uh, Christians understand this to be collateral damage of our war against God. That uh, when we rebelled against Him... Not only did our relationship with him break, but everything around us broke in the world. And so now we, we look at a world that's uh, full of a remarkable amount of poverty, that's very severe poverty. We see a tremendous amount of inequality of income that creates distress and difficulty for people living together and for nations living together. And then on the local level, we see that almost every decision we make is pretty well driven by greed and selfishness. And so when it comes to possessions and money and all these issues, we feel the brokenness pretty hard in the world. A lot of people try to come up with ways to address that and make things a little bit better. Uh, Usually it's some form of judo where you try to take uh, people's natural inclinations and channel them into some better direction. Some people will take uh, human beings' greed and selfishness or, uh, you know, enlightened self-interest, as we say, and try to use that to make them productive and efficient, at least. You know, if you're going to be selfish and greedy, you know, at least be good at it, right? Be productive and efficient. And we've benefited somewhat from that in a lot of ways. Other people try to take uh, human sentimentality and envy and uh, use that to sort of push people towards being compassionate and generous in their lives. And that helps some, too. But none of those uh, things that we can think to do economically to try to help address the real problems that are problems in human hearts, uh, the problems of envy and greed and selfishness and lack of compassion and generosity. Those things are inside of us, and no economic system can fix them. So when Jesus came to rescue us and came to set the world back right side up to fix our relationship with God that was broken by his mercy, and then he also came to undo all this collateral damage that was caused by our rebellion against God. And the way that he addresses that economically is by changing the way Christians look at money and then by putting us together in what is supposed to be kind of a new uh, display of what human beings can be like in community. Where we handle our money with generosity and compassion for each other rather than out of greed and selfishness. Where we actually attach ourselves to each other in community instead of uh, just doing for me and my own in our lives. Really let other people intrusively come into our lives and share our lives that way. So um, Jesus does what Karl Marx and Ludwig von Mises could never do, which is address the root causes of these economic problems in our hearts. And we're going to get an example of that in this early church uh, description of what happened in the book of Acts and see how they handled their money together. And from that, um, see what it looks like to begin to have a community where things are right side up with regard to money and the way we take care of each other. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we uh, tend to love and trust our money very deeply. And um, what you say in this passage is tremendously challenging for me, and I'm sure for my friends here. And So we ask that you would... um, Give us the help of your Holy Spirit that we might open our hearts and minds to you and accept 
these challenging words. Uh, mostly we pray that you would give us this joyful uh, freedom from the grip of money in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. But read with me beginning at verse 32 of Acts 4. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, This is one of the more metal passages in the New Testament. If you are uh, new to the New Testament, people don't get struck down dead by God very often. Um, But it does happen. It did happen here. So... I used to live in a country called the uh, Socialist Republic of Garlandia. Um, It was a strange Marxist kind of country. You know, it was one of these from each according to his ability to each according to his need kind of places. Um, You know, if anybody brought home a paycheck, it was just put into the commons hill. And everybody just felt like they had a right to it. And so all the people who lived in this Socialist Republic that I lived in felt like they had a right to free food and a right to health care and a right to free tuition even. And of course, this led to them becoming uh, envious and disincentivized freeloaders. Right. Well, it would if it was a nation maybe, but the Republic of Garlandia was my house and it was just a family. And all those things are actually pretty normal in a family, right? You bring home a paycheck to the family, it's not just your paycheck, it's everybody's paycheck. Um, I think I mentioned last week the difference between the refrigerator at the office and the refrigerator at your house. Like, uh, nobody at your house opens the door and says, hey, whose Coke is this? 
It's ours. It's in the refrigerator. You get it. You're in the family, right? It's family stuff. Uh, You don't have to write your name on it like you do at the office. Family. Now, family's overused, I know, as an analogy for all sorts of things. You know, people want to claim familial ties for their football team or for their uh, business or whatever else, but it actually is a legitimate analogy when it's used about the church, that the church lives as a family with the kind of deep connections that you would expect in a family. Um, It's the idea of what the church could and should be and can be to some extent in the way that we share our lives together, including our stuff, because of our experience in common of the grace of Jesus. Our common faith in him connects us to each other in a way that uh, is way more intrusive and deep than I think most of us expect. Probably more intrusive than most of us want uh, when we think about how connected we are supposed to be to each other. Uh, Because if if we're together as a family, uh, that connection includes how we think about our money. That our money is family money. And... If our family needs the money, it's their money, which is a radical thing to say, a radical thing to believe. It feels wildly aspirational to think that you could think of your possessions that way, that what I have belongs to my church family. It's a a more unusual way of thinking about church than you usually hear. Usually we just say, well, I go to church. (laughs) I go to church, not those people at church have a right to my money. Those are pretty two different levels of engagement with the church. And the one that's described to us in the scripture is the, is the stranger and more radical one, right? Uh, because our connection to Jesus connects us to each other. That's the main thing. The money part's just a corollary of that. It says in 30, verse 32 here that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Which sounds, again, that sounds like sentimental overreach. Uh, to, to, to talk about. It doesn't mean they didn't have political differences. It doesn't mean that they all had the same opinions on everything. It's that their faith in Jesus Christ overrode those differences, and what they had in common was more important to them than what they had in, as differences. Um, and there were, what by this time, I think 5,000 at least people, and that may just be a count of the men who were Christians at this point. So it's a big group. It's not like they all know each other with a lot of intimacy, but... Um, it certainly is a less individualistic way of thinking about church than we have. You know, um, that, that sense of connection to each other was a lot stronger than the normal Western American way of thinking about church. That's why you see with Barnabas here, Joseph, who was called Barnabas, a son of encouragement, uh, was able to be so generous, though. Um, he was generous with encouragement for other people, and he was generous with his money, both. And that's because... Um, He saw himself like Christians should see themselves, which is he saw himself as a one percenter, both in terms of money and spiritually and morally, a one percenter. He he thought, I am so loaded, I don't have to think about it anymore um, because Jesus himself has promised to take care of me and provide for me. So I don't have to worry about money. I, I have all I need right now, and if God's given it to me and you need it, you can have it. Um, he, he felt rich that way, also he felt rich spiritually because he's loved by Jesus. His identity is in what Jesus has done for him, so he doesn't have to prove himself and justify himself and show off with his money. He doesn't have to be defensive when he comes to church. He's able to go lovingly to encourage other people 
He feels rich because of his connection to Jesus, and so it's easy for him to be generous financially and relationally with the people at his church. And that's what we expect to see, what you hope to see, that, uh, that you can come to church with that kind of a servant's attitude, ready to be generous to other people, to encourage them, uh, willing to allow people to intrude in your life, to bother you, to take up your time, to make you listen and care about them when you might just prefer to be selfish and mind your own troubles, and it makes you able to give your money away when people need it in the church. It's a lot more than just going to church. It's a pretty idealized idea of the church. I, I haven't lived in a church that lives this out fully, but I have been in a position in churches to watch generosity. I probably get to see more of it than most church people do, and it's pretty astounding how generous Christians are to each other. Um, I get to see what people give to each other when they're in need. I get to see what the deacons and the mercy team will do in giving money to people in need. Uh, it's remarkable to see how generous God's people really are. There's always, though, an Ananias and Sapphira element in all of us and in every church. You know, people who, I mean, why did they lie? They gave away a lot of money, which was a good thing to do. They didn't have to give it away. They weren't compelled or coerced. Why did they lie? You have to figure it was because they wanted people to think about them the way people were thinking about Barnabas. Yeah, I want a nickname that sounds spiritual and cool too. You know, um, I want people to think that I'm generous and spiritual that way too. They were spinning things to try to enhance their own reputation, to make a name for themselves, to get credit. They wanted, you know, they want to go to the church that has the board that says, "Here are the." Here's the platinum level givers and here's the Maranatha level givers and here's the hallelujah level givers on the wall so they can get credit for it because they're trying to make a name for themselves with their money instead of being actually generous and holding on to their money because the grip of money in their lives wasn't broken. They're still believing the lies about what money can do for them in their lives. So, um, so. How, how much can we hope for here? Like, this is a new, really new little church. We don't even know each other very well yet. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be happy, you know, if we just uh, gave to the church in a regular way or something. That'd be a step up for us if we were having people over to our houses and things. A little bit of connection goes a long way at this early stage in a church. But can we genuinely aspire to be a church where people think of their money as family money? That, that this, what is mine, really belongs to you. I'm not going to consider what I have as my own. Um, and can you hope for that kind of connection in Tucson? You know, this is don't fence me in country, right? This is I got a wall around my house for a reason. It's not just so the coyotes won't jump over it and eat my dog. <laughs> it's to keep you out, right? <laughs> it's to protect me from my neighbors. And a place like this, to have people come together and intrusively share their lives with each other, to come together across racial lines, coming together across financial and class lines, to come across political lines and be together and share our lives together because of our common faith in Jesus. Where people with different political views could be of one heart and one soul together, coming together in one communion line uh, because they all need Jesus and are united in their love for him. You think that wouldn't stand out a little bit in a town like Tucson? You think that wouldn't be beautiful and attractive for people to come into the faith? I, 
That's what I'm hoping for, anyway. People who have their identity and security in Jesus. Um, And so they can be a part of an intrusive and beautiful new community that puts Jesus' healing on display. Supposed to be connected to each other. And uh, that that involves more than just financially, but it's not less than our money. Uh, Our money really is supposed to be each other's. Uh, It says no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold and brought the proceeds to what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet. Which is very striking, right? Family money. What this is, if you're, if you're familiar with the Old Testament much, it, it's, it echoes a lot. Because like what we read in Deuteronomy today about the year of Jubilee, when debts would be forgiven and property returned to original owners, uh, the land could rest and all of this, where there'll be no poor among you. is what God intended for his people, uh, but really never had any of its fulfillment until it started happening in the church. As far as we know, they never uh, honored the year of Jubilee and returned property to owners and canceled debts and things every 50th year. As far as we know, that didn't happen. But uh, it's starting to happen here in the church. It says there's no one among them was needy, which is the promise that God made to his people uh, long, long ago. The Jubilee year. You know, when Jesus came and preached in his hometown his first sermon, he, he said... I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He was quoting Isaiah 61. But he, said, he said, I've come to proclaim the year of Jubilee. I've come to announce the year of Jubilee. Uh, this is the setting free of the captive, setting free of the debtors, uh, both in their relationship to God and in- increasingly in their lives together as a community. Right? The year of Jubilee comes. And Jesus does this. The reason they never could observe the year of Jubilee is because nobody could get their grimy fingers loose enough from their stuff to give it back. Right? I mean, you, you can't tell me that the bottom line uh, can be overridden by some other concern for me. I mean, money is the real world. It's the tangible stuff. I don't let idealism change any of my attitudes and behavior with regard to my money. And Jesus said, what I've come to do is I'm going to change you from the inside out. So that your heart that clings to money so tightly can have its grip broken. So that you don't have to worship money anymore. So you don't have to serve money anymore. Uh, I'm going to do for you what money always promised it could do but never would do. I can give you a reputation that's unassailable. Money promises that but can't do it. I'm going to make you a beloved child of mine. A child of the king. One who lives under the favor of God. And that's going to give you substance and a name that money could never do for you. There's always somebody that has more money than you. There's always somebody that's more respected because of their money. Money doesn't deliver. I'm going to make you secure. You think if you have enough money, nothing can touch you. You'll be protected uh, throughout your entire life. And Jesus says that's that's a lie. It doesn't take hardly anything to bankrupt you, no matter how well you've prepared and saved. He says, but I've promised that I'll be your father, and not a hair will fall from your head. I Without my knowledge, I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry about money. You can seek my kingdom and I'll take care of you. And so you're secure in a way that money could never make you secure. And money makes us self-reliant. It's the best means we have to living uh, without God and making life work. Money says, look, if you have enough money, you won't need God. 
You'll have enough options, ability to solve your own problems. Of course, money can't deliver on that promise. Jesus says you need to come to me and not trust in your money. And if you need a legacy, money might give you a legacy if you have a ton of money. But even so, you know, they'll find out who you really were in 50 years and change the name on the building you endowed anyway, right? You know, so money can't give you what it promises. But Jesus joyfully sets us free from our, our love of money and our trust of money. We don't have to be afraid of money. We don't have to be terrified and lose sleep over our debt. Uh, we don't have to be terrified about our retirement. We don't have to be terrified about losing a job uh, because we have a provider. Money is a tool for us now. It's not a God for us anymore. And that's tremendously free. creates tremendous joy in your life. Money never gives you joy. It just gives you more to worry about. But when Jesus sets you free and says, I'll do for you everything money said it would do, then he sets you free to be generous. Right? You don't have to grasp your money and think, I've got to do for me and mine. I can't be generous because I've got to, I've got to make sure I'm okay. And Jesus says, I'm going to make sure you're okay. You be generous. When you give to the poor, you lend to God. I wouldn't worry about it. You're going to be fine. God's going to take care of you. I mean, that's what we're told. It's true. And uh, this can't, in this life, happen perfectly. I mean, we're not going to be the world's greatest church ever with regard to money and things. But it can happen substantially. Uh, it can be dramatically different. It can be striking to our neighbors around us if we could live in a way where we see our money as family money. Where we really take care of each other in the church. It would be remarkable. And it's a, it's a big deal for um, thinking about outsiders. Christian's generosity. It always has been. Uh, Julian, who was one of the last Roman emperors was trying to uh, put down the influence of Christianity in the Roman Empire. It, of course, was out of the barn at that point. But he, uh, he was complaining that the, the uh, pagan religions uh, were being uh, outclassed by the Christians in their generosity. And he said this. He says, um, why don't we observe that how the kindness of Christians to strangers and their care for the burial of the dead... And the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause. It's disgraceful when no Jew is a beggar and the impious Galileans, that's us, support our poor in addition to their own. He was mad because the Christians were taking care of their poor as well as our own. Um, they noticed. Uh, sexual ethics and generosity were the things that uh, people took notice of with the early church, right? They said, wow, what is... Those people are weird. They don't dress different, but they have a different sexual ethic and they have a very different generosity. And people noticed it. And in a day like ours, wouldn't people notice if we had a community that uh, was genuinely generous and not enthralled to money, uh, that really took care of each other, a place like this, a counterculture on display where uh, we care for each other even with our money. And we're not coerced to do it. It's all voluntary. And yet, because Jesus frees us from the grip of money and makes us generous, uh, we take care of each other that way. I mean, I think that could be one of the most appealing things we have to share in our neighborhoods around here, for people to see how we involve ourselves with each other and take care of each other. There's some practical considerations. Um, it's unusual for people to sell their capital, like their homes and their land and things like that. That's not typical in the church. Melinda tells me it's not wise. <laughs> she thinks about these things. Um, 
But they had a lot of people there from Pentecost from all over the world who were staying there for a long time, who'd been brought into the church. So they had unusual needs for taking care of people who were living for a long time there from out of town. And so it was a time of unique financial need for the church. Just like later in Acts, we'll read about the famine in Jerusalem. And the churches started in Antioch and around the Mediterranean Basin all took up collections to help relieve the famine in Jerusalem for the Christians there. Yeah, so there's, there is some uniqueness to the situation. It's not common for people to sell their capital. Uh, it's not unheard of, though, uh, to give to people in need in the church. Um, also, some of the money goes into a treasury, not all of it. A lot of uh, generosity from Christians just goes from family to family, and it's very discreet, and that's the way it should be. But we also take up some money and have some money in reserve for people who have needs uh, in common, kind of like the treasury storehouse in the Old Testament. You have that in the church. Uh, if you're uh, thoughtful or maybe cynical, you'd say, if Christians live this way, people would take advantage of them. And that's right. They would. They do. They should. If They ought to at least try it. We ought to be so generous that people are at least trying to take advantage of us financially. <laughs> you know, there ought to be people here seeing if they can uh, tell a good enough story or something. Um, there was a danger of people sponging off the church. In the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul said, if someone won't work, don't let him eat. You know, they were wise with their uh, charity and with their help, but uh, they were pretty promiscuous with their help, too. And so it ought to at least be a problem for us that people know our generosity and are, are trying to take advantage of that. Um, that's why you need wise people to be a part of the distribution of mercy in the church. Um, eventually, we'll have deacons who will help lead in that role so that um, you don't just give out money and things indiscriminately, but you try to use mercy money in a merciful way uh, to actually help people, uh, not to deepen their problems and dependence, uh, so that people who come for help, for, for help to the church uh, often need reconnection to a community as much as they need financial help. And so church leads in that direction a lot of times they need financial counsel and help with relief from debt more than they need uh, extra money. And church provides counsel for that. There are people here who are skilled at helping with that and already. So um, that's why we're trying to set some trajectory early days of the church. You know, we're on outside support right now still, if my math is right. It, I think about 75% of what we spend as a church this year is going to come from outside our church, uh, money that other people have given uh, so that this church could start and make it until we're able to pay our own bills. So, but even before we get to a self-funding uh, place as a church, uh, we're trying to set aside money to give away. So 20% of what is given in our church, we set aside to be given away outside. Uh, a lot goes to help fund the campus ministry for RUF, which is such an important mission for our church. Uh, a lot goes to help plant churches in other places where there aren't many churches. And then a lot set aside for 
the relief of needs that people have in the congregation. We've already been able to use a fair amount of money that way at different times. And so we want there to be more of that. I'd, if you are somebody who has a real heart for mercy ministry and giftedness for it, I'd love for you to talk to me about it because we're going to be putting together a team uh, to administer these things as uh, God raises those leaders up in the church. So, um, but it's easy, just like in a marriage with giving, it's easier if you start giving a percentage than to try to go back and retrofit that later with your giving. That's one reason we're starting to give early as a church. And if you're young and about to get married or anything, it's uh, especially wise to start with a habit of giving your money away proportionally. Um, then you don't miss it so much later. Tertullian uh, wrote about this in the early church in his Apologeticus. He said, Contributions are voluntary and proportionate to each one's income. They're used to support and bury poor people. I don't think like, the burying of poor people, they didn't use the money to kill the poor people. It's just when they died to pay for the burial. It's used to supply the wants of boys and girls who are destitute of means and of parents. Used to supply the needs of old people now confined to the house. And such as have suffered shipwreck, which we don't have as much here. Um, or any who are in the mines. We have some of those, right? We have mines. Or banished to the islands or shut up in prison for their fidelity to God's church. It's just the normal habit of Christians. Uh, we see it beginning in the book of Acts. We see it unfold through the church history. I've seen it in my life in the church, watching Christians be remarkably generous. Uh, because when Jesus breaks your grip on your money... It can become family money, and you can be scary generous. Now let's pray.